Listen to these, this reading from Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in, behind, and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is so high that I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and settle at the farthest limits of the sea, even there, your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light around me become night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. For it was you who formed me in my inner parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are all your works, and I know them very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes beheld my unformed substance. In your book were written all the days that were formed for me, when none of them as yet existed. How weighty to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I try to count them, they are more than the sand. I come to the end. I am still with you. Oh, that you would kill the wicked, O oh God, and that the bloodthirsty would depart from me. Those who speak of you maliciously and lift themselves up against you for evil, do I not hate those who hate you, O oh Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. See if there is any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, O Lord. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise one who built his house on rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat them on that house, but it did not fall because it had not been founded on rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish one who builds his house on sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was its fall. Now when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one having authority and not as their scribes. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word and for your spirit and for your son, Jesus. And we pray that right now you would be near to us, that you would ground us, give us a sense of your presence and your peace and that you would enliven us by your spirit and open our minds and our hearts, that we may hear a word from you even now, and that you may enlighten our path as we may walk in the way of life everlasting. Through Christ our Lord, amen. Search me, O God, and know my heart. 
Test me and know my thoughts. See if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So this may sound weird, uh, but for me personally, these final two verses of Psalm 139 are probably my most frequently prayed words of Scripture. I pray these words pretty much every day, actually. And when I think about how the Psalms teach us to pray, which is something we've been talking about all summer as we've done this sermon series on the Psalms, that the Psalms teach us to pray. When I think about that reality, this section, actually, of this Psalm is what comes first and foremost to my mind because these are words that have taught me and continue to teach me to pray. And what's kind of funny, to me anyway, is that the reason that these particular words of this particular psalm have worked their way so deeply into my life is actually a lot more uh, boringly ordinary than you might guess. I'd love to tell you that my relationship to this psalm is born out of some like deep soul-searching and spiritual discernment in which I took careful inventory of my own life and every passage of the, of the Bible and then finally landed on one that was this perfect fit that per put words to my deepest passions and experience in such a way that just felt right. But that's not actually how it went at all. The true story is basically that a couple of years ago, I downloaded this app to help me uh, with some prayer for structuring personal times of silent prayer. And the app uses this psalm as the intro. And so every time I open the app, this psalm comes up and I read it as a way of getting oriented and settled into prayer time. And then after a while, you know, when you read and reflect on the same few words repeatedly over time, they just sort of get into your bloodstream. And that's how liturgy works. We receive these words, these phrases, these forms, and they shape us as they become part of us. Thomas Merton describes praying the Psalms in this contemplative liturgical way as letting God pray in us in his own words. And indeed, that that's my experience of Psalm 139. I've experienced how these piercing words draw me into an encounter with God that is intimately personal, inviting God to search me and know me, to know me at the very level of my thoughts, to know my interior world, to examine and reveal me to myself and then to guide me in the way of life, in the way of stepping more fully into the gift of human life as God intends for it to be as flourishing in the world. To pray these words of the psalm sincerely really is to welcome God's gaze upon every aspect of our being, our thoughts, our words, our actions, our relationships, aspirations, our stories, our wounds, our defense mechanisms, all of it to welcome God's gaze upon every part and to consent to God's presence and activity, God's healing, restorative, illuminating, and sometimes even corrective work in our lives. And that can be kind of scary to do, can't it? Because there's a cost that comes with every change, and sometimes the cost can be enormous. But of course, at the heart of the Christian message, this message that centers on the crucifixion, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, at the heart of that message is this enduring hope that not only is the journey worth the cost, 
but that the costly journey is actually the way of life, the way of wisdom, goodness, and love. And that's the invitation that God extends to us when we pray the Psalms in Christ. It's an invitation to begin or to go further on a journey of becoming more fully and more beautifully and more compellingly, more life-givingly you. The you that God has known and cared for all the days of your life. The you that God has loved and redeemed in Jesus. The you God enlivens and animates by his own spirit of life, even right this very moment. And that journey of becoming is not just for your own good, is it? But it's for the good of all whose experience of life is shaped by your being in the world. As we think about ending summer and heading into the fall, as we think about going into this perhaps a new semester, whether you are in school or whether you have children in school or whether you simply live in a place whose life rhythms revolve around the academic calendar and we're heading into the fall, which feels like kicking off a new thing. As we head into this new season, this back half of 2020, that has already been such a strange year for all of us so far, as we head into this fall, what do you think the journey of becoming more fully and beautifully you might look like, taking up this journey of discipleship with Jesus. What do you need to die to, perhaps, this fall in order to come alive more fully? You know, speaking anecdotally, just in my own experience, it seems to me that it's become more fashionable, at least uh, in my social circles, to talk about being on a journey. Typically, I hear this language and use this language myself, even in conversations related to our current moment of discussion around racial justice, right? This moment of reckoning that we're in. And many of us in both the City Church and Liberty Church communities, we talk with one another and with our colleagues and with our neighbors and friends about being on a journey of sorts, right? About becoming, about changing, about maybe journeying toward becoming perhaps anti-racist, if you like to use that terminology, or becoming better allies, or toward becoming more diverse and equitable and inclusive in our community, recognizing that we aspire to a particular way of being human, both individually and communally, that we don't yet experience or enact as fully as we desire. And at the same time, recognizing that while we may have come to see and understand things about ourselves or about systemic realities in the world, we have to acknowledge humbly that we are still blind to other things that we don't yet see that we need to see, that we lack self-awareness that we need in order to become better friends, in order to become better allies, more beautiful, just, and loving versions of ourselves in the world. And I find this way of thinking and speaking about being on a journey, this language of journeying and becoming, to actually be really helpful not just with respect to matters of racial justice, but with respect to the aspect, uh, with any aspect, that is, of ongoing work of transformation in our lives. Because this language of journeying and becoming, it conveys this sense of movement, and it conveys a sense of active participation, of being on the way where you're neither where you used to be, nor where you ultimately hope to be, but you're clearly headed toward this hope-filled horizon. 
And the essence of Christian discipleship really is just following Jesus on this journey of becoming like him, of becoming humans who live into the world out of a love of God and neighbor the way Jesus did and the way Jesus taught and described. And this Psalm 139 is such a gift for us on that journey, not only because of how praying these concluding verses that I opened with opens us up to this searching, knowing, revealing, and leading activity of God in our lives, but because of how the rest of the psalm gives us such a beautiful and powerful portrayal of both God and humanity. God, this one who invites us, sustains us, and carries us on this journey. And humanity, what we are, who we are, this elegant being portrayed in this psalm, a picture of ourselves as creatures worthy of love and enjoying the privilege of such particular care of being known and loved by God. Of course, there's this jarring part also in the psalm that we read. If you were listening, you couldn't really miss it. In verses 19 to 22, the less frequently quoted part of the psalm, uh, that we'll touch on that too. It's the part about, you know, judgment and enemies and stuff like that. It sort of gives you whiplash as you read it because the whole psalm is so beautiful and so warm. And then you get to these verses and it's so different. We'll talk about that briefly at the, at the end. But for now, these first 18 verses of the psalm, if you would just look at those for a minute, they offer such a beautiful and, and poetic portrayal of God's universal presence in the world and God's universal knowledge of his creation and his creatures. And it also offers this picture of humanity's profound dignity and God's care for individual human life. In verses one through six, we see this beautiful description of how God knows the psalmist's whole life. Everywhere he goes, everything he thinks, everything he does, God knows all of it. And in verses 7 through 12, you see that there's nowhere to go to escape God's presence, the ever-presence of the Lord. The psalmist asks, where can I flee? There's nowhere to hide, not even in the dark, because the dark is not dark to you, O oh God. It's just like the light. God knows, God sees, and God is present to the one praying this prayer everywhere this person goes. God is intimately involved in this person's life. And as I think about this idea, there's nowhere to go, right? There's nowhere we can outrun the presence of God. Uh, at times, that can feel scary, I think. The psalmist uses this language of being hemmed in, which is a feeling I hate, right? This feeling of being trapped in verse 5 that he describes. But, the, but to con in drawing us into this contrast of being, the difference between being hemmed in without God, right, of the ways that I feel occasionally painted into a corner in my life where I feel trapped and I want to kick at that and I want to resist that and I want to escape that. Instead, this psalmist paints a a picture of being hemmed in into God, not entrapped in our circumstances, but enfolded into the abiding care, presence, and love of God. And the psalmist simply says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. There's a great mystery here 
about God's presence, God's attentiveness to our lives. And the psalmist is simply marveling at the mystery of a God who is nearer than we know and who is everywhere. If you look at verses 13 to 18, you see the Lord is present to the psalmist and has been all the days of his life, even when he was being knit together in his mother's womb. It's this picture of God seeing the individual person and God's care being full and particular. And as you pull this toward your own life and you simply sit with the words of this psalm, can you sit there in the presence of a God who holds each part of you and each part of your life, every piece of your story, even the pieces that are the most painful, that make you wonder whether God could possibly care about that part, and the parts for which you are most proud, you know, the parts that make you wonder if you really need God's help at all because you've got this pretty well on your own. Can you sit in the presence with a God who is near to you, the God who made you, who loves you, who holds you, who is particularly attentive to every aspect of your life and who loves you? And can you welcome God's presence to hold all the pieces of your story, all the pieces of your day, all the pieces of your hopes and your dreams, and to be there with the one who knows you and to consent to that loving God's activity in your life. One thing that jumps out to me about the love of God as we see it in this, in this psalm is just simply that God's love is not based on any kind of meritocracy. You don't gain or lose God's love based on how well you do life. God's love predates your very first achievement and endures even through and beyond your worst failure. And I think that's important for us to acknowledge and remember not only of ourselves, but also that that's true of your neighbor as well, right? That's true of the toughest person to love in your life. They too are seen and known and loved and held by God, regardless of whether they feel or believe that to be true, and regardless of whether you or I may feel or believe that they are worthy of such love and care, they are. They are worthy of such love and care. You are worthy of such love and care. I am worthy of such love and care. Not because we aren't sinful creatures, we are. We have sinned, we've fallen short of God's grace and glory. Of course we have. Yet, God has made us fearfully and wonderfully to be loved and known by him all the days of our lives. And that love predates our failure, it predates our success, and it abides and endures through it all. It's not because we've earned it or you've earned it. It's not because you or I haven't done harmful things to one another or wounded one another or perpetuated injustice, etc. God's love is not based on any net score of good that we somehow do outweighing the bad. God's love just is. God is, and God is love, and God is near. And that's true for you, no matter where you are, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what you believe, no matter how successful or unsuccessful you are, no matter how up to speed or not up to speed you are on current issues, whatever, there's nothing you can do to increase or decrease your worthiness of love because you are fearfully and wonderfully made by a God who loves you.
a God who has given you dignity, a God who sees you and knows you, and who is present to you every moment of your life, even when you yourself or I myself am not very present to God. Human dignity. It's such an enormous part of embarking on this journey of becoming like Jesus in the world because it's living into a dignity that is ours to receive. And it is also taking up a vocation of bestowing upon others or recognizing rather in others a dignity that is also truly theirs. I was with a group of pastors a year ago or so and one of them talked about loving people with your eyes. As you walk down the street, uh, to notice people, to see people, and simply to practice loving your neighbor with your eyes. An exercise that's all the more valuable when the rest of our faces are covered with masks and you can't see our smiles right now. Love your neighbor with your eyes because your neighbor is dignified. And as we think about <laughs> heading into election season, politics, fall 2020, here we go, right? There is such a culture of demonizing and dehumanizing one another. And that is just not the calling. That is not our calling in Jesus. Our calling is to honor one another. Regardless of what we agree on or disagree on politically, honor one another. Honor isn't the same as agreeing. Honor is simply recognizing the dignity in another person and celebrating it, acknowledging it as such. This high sense of human dignity is, is such an enormous piece of this psalm, such an enormous piece of our own becoming more like Jesus, to live into that dignity that is ours and to allow others to live into theirs as well. And that high sense of human dignity in the psalm really is the basis for the cries against injustice that we find in verses 19 to 22. When there are crimes against such dignified humans, the blood from the ground cries out for justice. And God's people who recognize the dignity of all are also to seek justice. And so what we find in these verses is an appeal, the psalmist's appeal to the judge of all creation. The same one who's saying, search me, is the one saying, destroy my violent oppressor. So one question that some commentators wrestle with around this psalm is whether this whole prayer is actually the psalmist appealing to God as a just judge in the face of being wrongly accused of something or potentially being unjustly persecuted about something. And so this, uh, this appeal to, be, to search me, know me, look at everything, you've been everywhere, God, you've seen it all, you know everything inside of me, all my, all my thoughts, everything, the, the whole thing, as well as this appeal to judge the violent oppressors, is sort of like an appeal to a third party to examine the truth, to examine what is real, and to do justice. And anytime we come across in, in the biblical literature these kinds of cries for destruction or cursing or whatever, it's really important to remember that these texts come from a time when Israel lived as this, na this nation state that God's promise was attached to and that those that threatened to crush them were also threatening to choke out the very promise of God that was for the good of the whole earth. And today we don't live in a time where any nation state is the vehicle by which God is bringing forth his blessing to the earth. 
nationalism and the gospel of Jesus just don't work together in any meaningful way, regardless of what nation it is that you're talking about. And so as we think about how we pull this psalm to our own lives, what we need to recognize is that we do so in union and communion with Jesus, who has come to be this suffering servant savior, to actually bear the injustice upon himself, to fall on that sword, so to speak, and then to rise above it, to break this world order that is ruled by injustice, and to unleash in our midst a new one that is beautiful, that reflects the order that our Creator has desired from day one. And so as we think about how to pull this psalm and psalms like it to our lives, Walter Brueggemann, the uh, Old Testament commentator, offers, I think, some, some helpful words of wisdom. He says, you know, perhaps the Hebrew wisdom tradition provides a helpful way to consider Psalm 139. God created the world and life and placed order in it, and God continues to sustain and govern that order. The task of humans is to seek and find that order and to live into it. The Lord is the creator and judge who knows humans and the one who grants judgment and mercy. Brueggemann, as he explores psalms like this, uh, one of the major themes uh, that comes to play is this, is this theme of the battle belongs to the Lord. Vengeance isn't ours to do. We leave that to God. Yet the remarkable thing that we see in Jesus is that what God desires to do isn't vengeance in the end, but it is mercy and love as a way toward justice. And as Brueggemann wrestles with that, he talks about a way through vengeance for those who want to follow Jesus on this journey of becoming human like Jesus. He writes this, a way beyond the Psalms of vengeance uh, is a, not a way that goes around them, but a way through them. And that is so because of what in fact goes on with us. Willy-nilly, we are vengeful creatures. Thus, these harsh Psalms must be fully embraced as our own. Our rage and indignation must be fully owned and fully expressed. And then, only then, can our rage and indignation be yielded to the mercy of God. In taking this route through them, we take the route God himself has gone. We are not permitted a cheaper, easier, more enlightened way. As we think about our journey of becoming more like Jesus, as a people who love God, who love neighbor, who become more beautifully, compellingly, and fully ourselves in Christ. We need to know that this journey of becoming more fully you in Christ, it's not a cheap, easy journey, but it is a glorious one. It is the way of life, and it is a spiritual journey. Spiritual director Ruth Haley Barton says, what distinguishes a spiritual journey from other journeys is discernment. Discernment is the big difference between spiritual journeys and all other kinds we may embark upon. And she says that to, to discern, what we need is to create space for recognizing the presence and activity of God in our lives. So friends, as we enter into this fall and wrap up this summer, as we consider the journey that's ahead of us, the journey to which God invites us of becoming more fully alive in Christ, how will you make space to pay attention to the presence and activity of God in your life? And how will we as a community make space for paying attention to what God is doing in our midst? And can we take to our lips this prayer, 
of search us and know us, O God. Reveal ourselves to ourselves and lead us in the way everlasting. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We come now to a time of offering where we reflect on God's generous provision for us in our lives, and we also consider the needs of our community and our neighbors. We offer ourselves and our gifts up to God as an act of worship and thanksgiving. There's, there's information there in your bulletin if you would like to participate financially in the work of either the City Church community or the Liberty community. So let's come and enter this time of offering now. <laughs> 